but I think there is still, to your point, I think there's still importance and value in, in showing up uh, because mm-hmm. it, in those moments of crisis, in those moments of stress uh, for whoever it is, wherever they are, at, at the national level, at the community level, that you remember, you remember who showed up. You, you, you remember who was there and you remember who, who did a good job. And, and the point I always make is in order for humanitarian assistance to be strategically valuable, it has to be tactically effective, mm-hmm. right? You can't, you can't just show up and wave the flag and take a picture and say, great, yeah. because it looks good on Twitter, right? But, but the people who are there, the people who are in the communities, they're, they're going to know. And, and that's where you really make a difference. It's, it's showing up, but showing up, showing up well and showing up correctly. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 37. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss American foreign policy, international relations, and the importance of U.S. engagement in the world. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy both interesting and easy to understand for those who don't follow it closely. So I'm Nicholas Hagan, founder of the Orientalist Express site and president of the board of directors for the Minnesota International NGO Network. I also work as the marketing and communications manager for Global Minnesota, a nonprofit that works to advance international understanding and engagement throughout Minnesota. Finally, I serve on the Minnesota Advisory Committee for the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, which is an advocacy organization dedicated to promoting the importance of American global engagement in international relations. So I'm joined today in the virtual studio by John Patterson, who works at the U.S. Agency for International Development and is a founding board member and adjunct adjunct professor for the University of San Diego's new Masters of Science in Humanitarian Action program. So welcome, John, and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thanks, Nick. Uh, it's great to be here. Appreciate appreciate you having me, and uh, looking forward to to the conversation. Yeah, as uh, as you mentioned, I work for for USAID. I've been working for USAID uh, as a humanitarian advisor for for almost ten years now, in, in a variety of of different roles. I was an advisor to the military. I worked uh, in Colombia for a while, leading a response to the Venezuela crisis. And for the past four years, I've been based in Budapest, uh, where I cover uh, Eastern Europe and Israel, West Bank, Gaza. Uh, and in addition to that, I've taken on recently some taken on some some teaching duties at the University of San Diego for this new master's program, which which we're really excited about. It kicked off uh, this semester, so we've got our first cohort of, of students who's going through it right now, uh, and that's that's been a lot of fun. Excellent. That's uh, quite a resume. You're very well traveled, I would say. Yeah, it's uh, you know maybe a little. A little too well traveled at, at times, but it's it's good. I, I believe in travel. It's important to to gain new perspectives. Yeah, and avid listeners will recall that I've actually talked a lot about USAID on past episodes and its importance in advancing American interests around the world through international development projects. So our international development projects, I believe, they're a critical link in American foreign policy as they really help to build the global infrastructure needed to promote stability, prosperity around the world. And though we spend only a fraction of the federal budget on these programs, less than 1%, if I'm correct, we get a significant return on that investment in the form of better global public health, increased security and stability for communities all over the world, and a really strong foreign partners for American business interests. So again, it's really great to have someone from USAID on the show to really dive into these topics a bit more. 
Great. Uh, yeah. So first, just tell me a little bit more about your work in particular and um, what are those connections between humanitarian assistance and foreign policy? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my work in particular, so, so much I've been with, with the agency for about 10 years and I, I started out in what was then called the Office of U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance, better known as OFTA, uh, and what has now become BHA, the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. So within that, our responsibility is very much focused on the humanitarian assistance and the disaster response side. So within international development, people generally talk about a spectrum of activities ranging from you know, very long-term investments in education systems, in healthcare systems, in developing stronger uh, political mechanisms and elections and things like that. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those, those things that we do, those activities that we do in, in response to an acute crisis, uh, whatever that may be. It may be an earthquake, a typhoon, it could be a conflict, it could be some kind of explosion. Whatever it is, there is some kind of immediate acute humanitarian need, uh, and we step in and, and we provide what support we can. And that's, that's the area that, that I am primarily focused on. What is it worth to essentially show up, provide some aid, and then you know hopefully stick around for a while? But maybe that's all we, all we do in some cases is show up and provide that aid. You know, how does that really benefit our foreign policy? Do you think? Yeah, it's a really it's a really great question, and it's an interesting one. And like so many great questions, the answer you're going to get it depends a lot on on who you ask, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And there's going to be a spectrum of answers, just like kind of like there are. So on, on one end. You're going to have you're going to have some hardcore humanitarians within within the field who might call them Dunantists, right? So after Henri Dunant, the guy who who founded the the International uh, Committee for the Red Cross, okay. and and these are folks who believe that there should be no connection, that humanitarian assistance is beyond politics, above politics. It shouldn't touch it. Uh, it should only be administered in uh, in adherence to the core humanitarian principles of neutrality and independence, impartiality, yeah. Yeah. Um, et cetera. And then on the other hand, uh, on the other end of that spectrum, you're going to have um, probably some more more hawkish responses. Some kind of more folks who are influenced by real politic, and they're going to say, "No, you know what? This is this is nothing more than another tool of the state, right? It, it's great, it's nice, and it's wonderful. We all like helping people, but let's be honest: what we're really doing here is is advancing our own individual interests. And and like most things, you know, I I think the reality. The reality lies somewhere in the middle, and it has to do a lot with with the context. Um, like you know, like we mentioned, in some cases, yes, we do, we do show up and we stick around and we transition to longer term programming that then you know, leads to you know further investments in economic development or democracy and governments, whatever it is. And in other cases, um, that's all we do. Uh, we show up, we provide some immediate assistance, and and for a variety of reasons that we might be might be limited to that. But I think there is still, to your point, I think there's still importance and value in in showing up uh, because it in those moments of crisis, in those moments of stress uh, for whoever it is, wherever they are, at, at the national level, at the community level, that you remember, you remember who showed up, you 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 remember who was there, and you remember who who did a good job, and you remember who did it. Uh, and how they did it. And this is this is something, you know, one one of my things that I do is, is I often have to to message up to to senior leaders about how what we do and and kind of about these humanitarian principles and the importance of even as a US government 
adhering to them, and this was especially true when I was a humanitarian advisor uh, to the military at Southcom, where I would have to message this to to four star generals and, and admirals. Um, and and the point I always make is, in order for humanitarian assistance to be strategically valuable, it has to be tactically effective, mm. right? You can't you can't just show up and wave the flag and take a picture and say great yeah. because it looks good on Twitter, right? But but the people who are there, the people who are in the communities, they're they're going to know, and and that's where you really make a difference. It's it's showing up, but showing up, showing up well and showing up correctly. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I really like how you said, you know, it, it is there is that that certain debate that's happening. And personally, I'm of the opinion that, you know, it is both the right thing to do and in our interest to do it, partially just because it's the right thing to do. You know, people do remember these things. I I still hear stories of people saying how grateful they were after the 2005 tsunami, the amount of aid, especially from the U.S. Navy that just started pouring into these places, you know, really made a difference in a lot of people's lives. And that's, like I say, the right thing to do, but it's also just a, our, in our interest to do that right thing. Yeah. And th- these things do not have to be, you know, sometimes they come into tension, but but actually the majority of the time they don't. The majority of the time, you know, doing the right thing is is in our best interest. Yeah. So you've uh, been working on development projects with the Palestinians recently. Uh, so what were some of those challenges working in that particular environment? Yeah, so this is yeah, this is one of the, the most interesting parts of my portfolio. It's probably the most interesting part of my yeah. portfolio. So I, yeah, so, so I cover you know Eastern Europe, primarily uh, the Balkans and the Caucasus, but then I, I spend probably 70% of my time on, on the West Bank Gaza portfolio. And, you know, it is... This is a, a space where those tensions between the principles and the politics definitely do show themselves. I, and yeah. I think, yeah, it, it's true everywhere, um, but it's especially true there. And, you know, as humanitarians, we often say, you know, there there are not humanitarian solutions to humanitarian problems, right? There's, mm. they are driven by politics, they're driven by conflict, they're driven by vulnerabilities to climate change, vulnerabilities to all these other things. And and humanitarian assistance cannot be the solution to those mm-hmm. underlying problems. And, and like I said, that's true everywhere, but it is uh, it is especially true uh, in West Bank Gaza. And I think you know the, the biggest challenge is, is is trying to find that maneuvering room to 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 adhere to the policies and and to continue to support our broader strategic games of the two-state solution, of finding a, a path forward and a future for the Palestinians, um, but at the same time kind of operating in what is a, a very constrained environment, and the constraints are, you know, they're political in nature. Um, it's, yeah, but there's a lot of challenges. We could talk about this one all day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and for me, what immediately comes to mind is, you know, just the the restrictions on things that can actually enter a lot of those places, especially in places like Gaza, where there's just certain things that, you know, will not be allowed into that area for a variety of reasons. And I imagine that makes it very difficult. Oh, it does. So there is, uh, there's, there's a mechanism that was put in place following the 2014 Gaza war called the the Gaza reconstruction mechanism. Hmm. And this is, this is a list that's maintained by the Israelis of, of items that can get in and, and, and all this stuff. And this is, 
So we have uh, within the humanitarian uh, international structure, there's oftentimes what's called a humanitarian country team. And that is comprised of all of the UN agencies and several of the larger INGOs who are, who are working on humanitarian issues. And we, and some of the donors uh, like USAID, we convene at least once a month to discuss you know, uh, key topics. I would say the Gaza reconstruction mechanism is on the agenda like at least every other month. I mean, it is, it's constant for sure. Yeah. Well, and doesn't it even limit some things like certain types of tubes that, um, you know, could be used for like plumbing or, you know, various purposes, but ostensibly the reason is because they could also be used for weapons. But if you can't bring that into the country for, you know, something as simple as plumbing, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that one of those uh, examples? Oh yeah, that's 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 spot on. And now there are, you know, from, from our perspective at BHA, we're lucky in that there are uh, there are some humanitarian carve outs. So, so the basic things um, are, are on paper supposed to, to get in. And in general, you know, we as a humanitarian organization or, and we as USAID don't have too much trouble kind of getting these things in. But, but the minute you start talking about, yeah, if you want to, you want to address food security issues in Gaza, for example, right? I mean, the, the bigger problem is that uh, a lot of the, a lot of the farmers don't have the agricultural inputs that they need in terms of irrigation systems and things like that. And they don't even have access, you know, unmitigated secure access to their lands all the time. And, and that's where these challenges really come in because there is, you know, there are, there are legitimate security concerns that are raised on the Israeli side, but there's also very yeah. legitimate humanitarian concerns that are raised on the Palestinian side. And yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it is one of, if not the longest running humanitarian crisis in the world. Well, one of the, bringing it back to Minnesota, uh, one of the lesser known Minnesota connections for international development is the Humphrey School of Public Affairs and the Food for Peace program. So if you could tell me a little more about that connection and really how global development abroad helps the average Minnesotan at home. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of my, one of my favorite things, like, like, like many amongst the Minnesota diaspora, one of my favorite things to do is to, to brag about, uh, brag about Minnesota. Yes. So I always, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, my friends in high school, we actually started a blog called you're welcome. Love Minnesota about all yeah. of the amazing things that Minnesota has, has given to the world. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so this is something that I, I often brought up. So, so food for peace. So I mentioned, I originally started with OFTA and OFTA's sister office was the office of food for peace. So, so OFTA focused on all of the kind of non-food humanitarian response, while Food for Peace had the the, the mandate to, to provide the, the food assistance in a humanitarian setting. And the origins of Food for Peace are, are from, from Humphrey. So in, in, in 1954, he put forward a bill um, that at the time was primarily designed actually to, to unload a lot of the surplus uh, food that American farmers had and, and find an effective and, and cost-effective way to get rid of that. And but over time, that actually shifted in the 1960s under Kennedy. That shifted a little bit more, and it really shifted from just you know just trying to to offload that grain, which was still being offloaded in, in useful ways to the countries that received it, but then focusing it much more on on a humanitarian role for that and, and pushing that forward. And and yeah, it started with Humphrey, which is which is great. Which I always like to remind my my food for peace colleagues of. Yeah, and that I think is one of those excellent examples I love to highlight where. You know, we're we're taking kind of a, a problem that's domestic, like, you know, there's there's 
not necessarily a market for all of this uh, foodstuffs that farmers are producing and finding a way to to bring that abroad in a way that both helps the farmers abroad, but then also helps the farmers at home, but also just helps the people abroad. And I think, um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I think North Korea has been one of the, the largest recipients of Food for Peace, hasn't it? North Korea has, yeah, which is an interesting thing to kind of get back to our original question and kind of about some of these principles. Um, so within you know, why the U.S. government has a humanitarian wing within that Congress has given us special authorities that allow us to respond in places like North Korea and in Iran, um, where we don't even have diplomatic relations and, and where the rest of the U.S. government can't really engage because that, you know, we, we've recognized the importance of this um, as, as a policy tool, but just as a, as, a, as a piece of humanity. We have the ability to do that, and we have, uh, as you mentioned, we've, we've provided food assistance in North Korea. We provided assistance uh, in Iran following the earthquake in 2006, um, and, and you know we continue to be ready to, to support those types of activities. Yeah, and I think that's really what kind of sets the United States apart is that we'll do this for the people of a country who, you know, that country is not our 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 you know friend in any sense of the word. But we're not after the people, you know, we're looking to try to help the people who are, in many cases, suffering because of these regimes. Yeah, no, I think it is, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily unique, solely unique to the US, right? There's other countries that yeah. do this, but, but I think it is, it is ingrained in, I think it's ingrained in the American psyche. And I think, you know, again, to not to, to bring it back too much, but I think it's ingrained in, in the Midwest and in, in the way we're brought up and that this is, this is what you do. You chip in, you help out when, when people need it. It is, it, it's part of our psyche. It's part of who we are. Yeah. And, and one of the ways, uh, if we can shift to refugee assistance, you know, Minnesota is really proud to play a prominent role in refugee resettlement programs. And that's for communities like, of course, the Hmong and the Ethiopian communities uh, here in Minnesota. So what are some of those refugee assistance programs or efforts that you've worked on personally in your role in USAID? That was a great transition. We didn't even plan. I didn't even plan that. That was pretty. I, I, I know. Was, it just, that it was came amazing. Up and I was like, boom, I'm going for it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. So a couple of things. So I think it's interesting. One, you know, I mean, not to. We could spend all day talking about refugee and refugee assistance, right? I think yeah. this is, as I'm sure you're familiar, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. This is an often abused term, right? It, people throw around the term refugee without really understanding its implications and what it means, because it is actually a legal definition and it has international law behind it. And you can't just become a refugee. You can't just cross a border and say, I'm a refugee. Your case has to be adjudicated. You have to go through all kinds of background tracks. There are all kinds of things that, that, that have to happen, you know, before, before you even come close to, to a, getting to a third country or Minnesota or wherever you're going to end up. Um, so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Within the U.S. government, there, there's a general division of labor uh, between uh, BHA, where I work, Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, and uh, the State Department's Bureau for Population, Refugees, and Migration. Uh, so in general, the PRM, they are responsible for the humanitarian needs of refugees, as well as uh, the, uh, the, the integration. So once, once a person has actually filed, uh, filed an asylum claim that a claim has been properly adjudicated and they've been identified and cleared for all those things that they, yes, they are going to be resettled in the US, they're gonna be resettled in Minnesota. Uh, the State Department will provide them that assistance. The one area that we do continue to, to support refugees is, is in food assistance. So that was 
Again, something that the Office of Food for Peace was responsible for in providing uh, food assistance to refugees in humanitarian settings, uh, and that has continued. So that is, is still part of uh, what we do. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a big part of what we do. I think personally, I've been involved in a few different ones. Uh, most recently, probably a couple of years ago in Armenia, uh, after the war in Nagorno-Karabakh in 2020, we were there providing a lot of assistance. Again, it's an interesting one, right? Because they were coming from Nagorno-Karabakh, so they didn't really cross an internationally recognized border. So what, what were yeah. they actually? But you get the idea. Yeah, well, and, you know, especially in some places of the world, uh, internationally recognized borders are not the borders that a lot of people on the ground recognize. It's It can be very different. Oh, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it is. It, it's very interesting. And Nagorno-Karabakh is, I think, a, a great response and a great example of that. You know, following the war, I spent a lot of time out there and in, in the border communities. And yeah, I mean, these are people who have been living in these communities for for generations uh and they have lands on different you know this and that's just this, this is where i graze my cattle this is where i've always grazed my cattle and now suddenly overnight it's on the wrong side of a line now you don't have now you've lost your your food source now you've lost your income generation potential and that, that creates a lot of problems yeah and that's one thing i really want to highlight which is so important about um, you know, taking it back to just kind of your regular development and your, you know, rapid response uh, assistance is really to try to prevent these types of migrations, because most of the time people don't want to leave their ancestral homes. They don't want to leave the places that they've called home for generations, but for many circumstances, they're forced to for their own safety. And if we can do whatever we can to to step in, provide that assistance and and to keep them where they are, because that's where they want to be then you know that's that's really a win all around i i i talk about this all the time i mean it's people are people are people i know that's cliche to say but i, I do think you know the human brain is just bombarded with information all the time and we do have to create these these ways to process it and one of the ways i think we do is distance and we you know a piece of news comes up and we say oh there is there's a war in nagorno karabakh Okay, that's not close to me. I'm fine. I'm safe. That's yeah. somewhere else. But in in other ways, it's an arbitrary distinction. It's just a way your brain is processing it. But the, you know, people are, are still people, and none of us want to leave our home, right? It would, you have to think about what it would take for you sitting at home in Minnesota right now. What what would the circumstances have to be for you to say, okay, I'm I'm picking like I'm picking up and I'm just leaving. I don't have yeah. a job offer in some other country. I'm not like I'm I'm just leaving and mm -hmm. i promise you those are the exact same calculations that people in nagorno-karabakh make that that people all over the world who are in these 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 dire straits have to make all the time yeah i think that's a great idea to to have people just conceptualize what it would take in their own lives and you know we think about we think about um you know these refugee programs bringing people into the united states kind of as you touched on that's a really hard process. Like, it's not like the gates are just open and everyone can just come on in. Like, it takes a long, long time to get, to, to actually get here. Oh, it's, it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm grasping at numbers here, so I'm sure I'm probably gonna get them wrong. We'll have to fact check me. But so there is a international organization of migration supports and, and a couple of different organizations uh, support some indexes that, that, track how many people are displaced around the world. And 
you know, for the last several years, it's been its, its highest levels since World War II. We're talking yeah. 60, 70 million people displaced around the yeah. world. And then you think about, and, and Minnesota, is, as you mentioned, is great, has a wonderful track record of, of bringing people in and, and, and bringing refugees and resettling them. But, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's hundreds or, or thousands a year, maybe, you know, out of 60 million. Yeah, to 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 get that, you're you are among the most lucky folks for sure. And you know, we, I mean, people have these debates all the time, and it's good. And there, there's there's much to be debated, mm-hmm. but I do think it is it, it is important to to try and, and ground ourselves in in the reality of of what the system actually is. Well, um, kind of bringing it back home some more. You know, according to again the Minnesota International NGO Network, we had our 2020 global report. And there's nearly a hundred of these organizations in Minnesota alone that focus on international de- development. So how does USAID usually interact with some of these organizations? Because I know that there's some crossover here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so those organizations, from 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 our standpoint as a donor, we we call them implementing partners. Um, mm-hmm. And so on the on the programmatic side, when I try and explain to to people what it is I do. It's probably a terrible analogy, but I explained basically, programmatically, I'm I'm a hedge fund manager. I take <laughs> I, t- I take U.S. taxpayer dollars, somebody else's money, and I invest them in somebody else's program, somebody else's project. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the difference is obviously I'm not trying to turn a profit. I'm trying to alleviate humanitarian needs, but but that's what we do. So the way that we interact with those types of organizations is, you know, after a disaster, for example, we'll go in, we'll conduct our own needs assessment. We'll take a look and, and listen to other needs assessments, but we'll identify the areas in coordination with other donors like the Europeans, like the Canadians, like the Japanese. We'll say, okay, here's where we think the US government's investment is going to be. We want to invest in water sanitation and hygiene projects. We want to work, uh, invest in um, health projects or something like that. And we'll reach out to organizations like those in Minnesota and, and, uh, and see who's there, who's on the ground, who's interested, who has the capability, and, and we'll work with them to develop that program and then provide them financial resources to implement it. Um, I think you know the most concrete example I can give is in 2014, I, I was in Liberia for the Ebola response, uh, and, and we were supporting uh, what was then the American Refugee Committee, which is now a light, mm-hmm. uh, to support uh, several of our Ebola treatment units there. Um, they sent uh, some doctors and things to go and run those clinics. And, and so that's, that's, I think, the most concrete example is what we would call our, our implementing partners. Yeah. Alight is fantastic. I love Amazing. those guys. They're, they're fantastic. And, and I think that's actually a really good analogy. And it shows that, that interplay between you know, what's happening abroad and what's happening here at home, because those funds are helping organizations right here in Minnesota. It's not like all of that money is just going out the door to, you know, some other country abroad. It is being invested here in the United States in many ways to provide services, to purchase goods, to send them abroad. And so, you know, that investment, which again, very, very minimal part of the federal budget, you know, less than 1% for all of USAID, State Department, and everything else we're doing, um, yeah. you know, it's it's really helping here at home as well as abroad. Oh, absolutely. The, and the connections that it, it always amazes me the the connections that are made. Actually, you know, I um, to to my to my shame, I wasn't as familiar with the American Refugee Committee until I went to Liberia, 
And I actually ended up uh, connecting primarily with them when I got back and I, and I met uh, the then CEO at a diaspora event in Brooklyn Park where we were talking to the Liberian wow. diaspora about what we were doing. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, those connections and, and something like organizations like Alight, yeah, they're working, they're working abroad, but they're working with the communities in Minnesota as well and, and, and really making those really interesting connections between domestic and international. Uh, what are the benefits of these programs for the average American? We've touched on it a little bit, but you know, why should we care about what happens abroad and why we spend this money? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean there's some there's some real basic kind of um, concrete examples, right? So uh, Minnesota Minnesota is a is a big exporter, right? Minnesota is I think the fourth largest agricultural exporter in in the US, right? And so all of those programs that we talked about, we talked about the genesis of Food for Peace, you know, they, those, those exports, which are, you know, it's I think like seven or $8 billion a year, they need somewhere to go. They need, like you, like you mentioned, they need solid, stable partners that, um, that, that can buy, that, that we can work with economically. This was, this was largely what was behind the whole Marshall Plan, right? Is, you know, we, yeah. we needed a strong, rejuvenated Europe to, to trade with, to, to be partners with. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a real, that's a real thing. That's, you know, we, we need those, we need those markets and, and the markets that Minnesota agriculture are going to, it's not just, you know, the huge uh, established uh, countries They're, They are working with places like the Philippines. They're going to Vietnam, they're going to Colombia. Um, and these are places that, you know, you know, from from a, if you wanted to to boil it down to just a pure economic investment standpoint, it, you absolutely couldn't. It's there. But, you know, obviously for me as, as a humanitarian looking at it, I, I, I think this is kind of what foreign policy is, is all about. Right. It's the recognition that our our interests and our responsibilities don't don't stop at the border. Yeah. And. And I think, you know, people have probably been having those conversations since we started putting up borders and realizing that, you know, you border borders can can only do so much. And and the reality is that that we are connected in very real and and very important ways. And and if nothing else on the human level, um, to be able to connect and provide that assistance to our fellow humans, I think uh, you know, for me personally, that's that's why we're here. Exactly. And I think um, one of the statistics I always like to quote is something like one fifth, you know, 20% of jobs in Minnesota are directly tied to foreign trade. And one of the biggest success stories, I believe, is actually South Korea, if I'm not mistaken, where, you know, they were one of the biggest recipients of aid. And now they're one of our biggest trading partners because they they use that aid, they, they developed their industries and they turned it around. And now, you know, they're providing that sort of business support for us as well. Well, we're coming up on time, um, so I just wanted to give you the opportunity to, um, you know, if there's anything else you wanted to mention, um, anything you wanted to promote, uh, now's the time. No, I I really appreciate uh, you uh, you having me on. I, I love I love these issues. I, I've been working on them for 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 a long time. And for any of you listeners who are who are interested in this, who are you know kind of piqued their interest, uh, I would encourage them. To, to look into it, to, to see what, see what's out there. There's, there's a lot of ways to get involved. There's a lot of ways um, to be a humanitarian, to be a development actor and to work on these issues. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the best things you could do is start off by getting your master's in humanitarian assistance at the University of San Diego. So. 
There you go. Yeah, that, that would do it. Yeah. And you can sit, you can sit in my class and you can listen to me talk about this ad nauseum. That'd be great. Well, there's certainly nothing nauseous about it. I think you've uh, you've got a really good way of of distilling this and showing the importance of it without uh, overdoing it. So I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Great. Well, again, really appreciate having you on. Thank you for your time today. And I'm, I'm sure we'll see you again soon. That would be great. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to once again thank John for joining the show today. Thanks, of course, as always, to our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.